It's funny how these synchronistic things tend to happen. I was talking to Kevin in an interview, I guess earlier today, and he mentioned a book. Uh, I said, oh, I don't think I've heard that. But uh, actually, I have read it before, and it, it just fits. Uh, some of you probably read it. I, I read it on the Internet. It made the rounds for a while, being passed around by people. Um, this remarkable talk that David Foster Wallace gave, I guess, at some commencement. And uh, he killed himself then a year later or so, which is sort of a tragic end ending. And when you read it, if you read it, you'll see that there's some very deep wisdom in his um, talk. And I, I pick up at least uh, some bitterness. I'm a little bit embittered by life not able to fully integrate some of the understanding that he seemed to have or live it or I'm not sure what. But still, I think he's asking the right questions and he begins this beautiful talk by just this uh, silly little story that most of us, many of us have heard before. There are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet, meet an older fish swimming in the other way who nods at them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit. And then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, What the hell is water? <laughs> so you probably have heard some variation of this story that something that is so common uh, is something we tend not to notice. But just because it's common and we tend not to notice it doesn't mean that it's not important. And that it's basically the point of this essay. Uh, he talks about how easy it is for us to live a life where we haven't noticed thinking and the choices we make by um, the kind of thinking, what we pay attention to and how we think about it, how we relate to that. It's very Buddhist in his approach. I'll just read a couple other pages a little further along. As I'm sure you guys know by now, it is extremely difficult to stay alert and attentive instead of getting hypnotized by the constant monologue inside your head. What you don't yet know are the stakes of the struggle. In the 20 years since my own graduation, I have come to gradually understand these stakes and to see the liberal arts cliche about teaching you how to think was actually shorthand for a very deep and important truth, learning how to think. Learning how to think really means learning how to exercise some control over how and what you think. It means being conscious and aware enough to choose what you pay attention to and to choose how you construct meaning from experience. Because if you cannot or will not exercise this kind of choice in adult life, you will be totally hosed. <laughs> See, it sounds familiar. Think about the old cliché about the mind being an excellent servant but a terrible master. This, like many clichés, so lame and banal, on the surface actually expresses a great and terrible truth. It is the not least bit coincidental that adults who commit suicide with firearms nearly always shoot themselves in the head. 
he goes on to talk about this is what to me gave sort of a bitter feeling he seems to understand quite well the dukkha involved of uh, a mind that hasn't been trained hasn't been trained means means that it doesn't occur to us we're so busy in a sense following the lead of the mind following the habituated inclinations of the mind it doesn't occur to us to examine what the mind is doing, how what it's looking at, what it's thinking, how it's relating. And this is the basic uh, teaching of intuitive awareness. It's a pointing to something present, something here and now, but not the objects that are coming and going, the objects that we react to. As many of you have heard me say, but a particular teaching that I like that Ajahn Sumedho received a long time ago from one of the Thai masters, something having to do with, it's all about the heart and distinguishing the activity of the heart from the heart itself. And I think this is what this old Thai master was trying to say, that there is the activity of our lives and then there's something else. And it's the not making the distinction between the two that keeps us confused. If I have a lot of thoughts as I do about myself and about you and about things and all there are, all that I'm aware of are my thoughts about things, then I have no choice but to inhabit those thoughts, to be those thoughts. Self is those thoughts. That's who I am. I'm the one who's angry. I'm the one who likes this. I'm the one who's afraid of that. This is uh, from Nisargadatta, this famous Indian sage who died in, I think, the 50s. Oh, no, 83, actually. The book is I Am That. You cannot possibly say that you are what you think yourself to be. Your ideas about yourself change from day to day and from moment to moment. Your self-image is the most changeful thing you have. It is utterly vulnerable at the mercy of a passerby, a bereavement, the loss of a job, an insult, and your image of yourself, which you call your person, changes deeply. To know what you are, you must first investigate and know what you are not. And to know what you are not, you must watch yourself carefully, rejecting all that does not necessarily go with the basic fact, I am. The idea is, I am born at a given place, at a given time, for my parents, and now I am so-and-so, living at, married to, father of, employed by, and so on, are not inherent to the sense, I am. Our usual attitude is, I am this. Separate consistently and perseveringly the I am from this or that. 
try to feel what it means to be just to be without being this or that all our habits go against it and the task of fighting them is long and hard sometimes the clear understanding helps a lot the clearer you understand that on the level of the mind you can be described in negative terms only the quicker you will come to the end of your search and realize your limitless being So, of course, Nisargadatta wasn't trained in Buddhist teaching, the Buddhist teachings at all. He was raised in India, modern India. It's not until recently there wasn't much Buddhism in modern India. Until the Tibetans left Tibet, it had sort of completely disappeared for centuries. But it's the same insight, this idea that, uh, you know, using the negative, that what we take refuge in isn't something we can conceptualize, isn't something we can grasp. If it is, then it's the object. And as an object, it isn't worthy of attachment, isn't worthy of clinging. Here's Ajahn Sumedho. So this is the goal, Nibbana, or realization of non-grasping of any phenomena that has a beginning and ending. When we let go of this insidious and habitual attachment to what is born and dies, we begin to realize the deathless. You know, the funny thing is that it doesn't that it doesn't stand out. You know, I'm thinking now about when I was younger, like a teenager, an early adult, where it's uh, sort of trying on different ideas of who I am. You know, I'm a healer, I'm a this, I'm a that. (laughs) And it doesn't strike us as it should, you know, like, well, this is ridiculous. I mean, is it really that fluid? And if, is it, could it be that something so fluid could actually be meaningful or something we'd build our life upon? And even now, you know, as mature adults, do you, do you notice that sort of like we have a bad sit and we realize, okay, I mean, we don't do it out loud. It's sort of there in the corners of our mind, but we have this thought, okay, so I can't put my eggs in the basket of being a good meditator, so I'll, I'll be a really loving, generous person instead. Or, you know, it's like we're recreating ourselves as a self all the time based on, you know, whether we're having a loving relationship moment with our partner or not. And then, okay, I'm the person who has this really healthy relationship. And then, you know, the next day or the next hour, it's like, I'm the person who has to find a different partner. (laughs) I'm going to be single now, and that will be okay. And we're constantly recreating, like even in terms of health, too, I noticed this. You know, I sometimes after a program at Common Ground, I'm just feeling a little high and I'll run home and I'll just feel the life energy in my body and it will just feel so good and I'll feel powerful and you know that feeling you can have even when you're 52 and then you know another day often the next morning you know I'll feel the stiffness or I'll feel the torn or strained muscle or feel a little like I ate too much or ate the wrong food and I'll just notice the uh, inherent vulnerability of my body and I'll have a completely different story that will feel so real like uh, 
I'm a vulnerable, I have this vulnerable body. It needs healing. It needs, you know, and then that's our whole trip. And we live inside of that little bubble for a while. So it is to me, um, personally, just amazing that that we still do this, that it's still so compelling, the stories we tell ourselves and then that we live inside of. Instead of Ajahn Sumedho's advice, you know, that anything that comes and goes, anything that's born and die, is not worthy of grasping, is not worthy of identification. Which, of course, means anything we can conceive of. And to the degree that we would get that, it means we'd really be focusing our energy on letting go instead of finding something to grasp, some idea that feels like I can really take a hold of it. Like even the idea, tomorrow the retreat will be over. I mean, how many times have we grasped that idea today? You know, tomorrow will be over, I'll be set free. I'll be able... <laughs> and it becomes it becomes our identity. I'm the person who will be free tomorrow about 12 o'clock, free of the limitations of this container, free of these painful sensations that come with sitting still. We can concoct all kinds of identities. Those of you who've been on a lot of common ground retreats probably have the identity, I'm the person who gets scrambled eggs tomorrow for breakfast. <laughs> Is that right, Kim? <laughs> Do we get scrambled eggs tomorrow? <laughs> it's one of our, one of our rituals here at the Common Ground Retreats. Even little silly things like that can be part of our identity. That that's, I'm that person. And, and we create some temporary sense of stability or happiness on these funny things. But, of course, then we're vulnerable. Like we're vulnerable to the eggs burning or we're vulnerable to the kitchen manager deciding to do something else instead of the typical thing of having scrambled eggs or Kevin asking you to do a task right before breakfast so you can't go to breakfast or whatever, you know, whatever might happen. The Buddha summarized his whole path in terms of this in not clinging. This is one variation of that particular teaching he gave in so many different ways. A practitioner has heard that nothing is worth adhering to. When a practitioner has heard that nothing is worth adhering to, she directly knows everything. Having directly known everything, she fully understands everything. Having fully understood everything, whatever feeling she feels, whether pleasant, painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, she abides contemplating impermanence in those feelings, contemplating fading away, contemplating cessation, contemplating relinquishment, contemplating thus she does not cling to anything in the world. When she does not cling, she is not agitated. When she is not agitated, she personally attains Nibbana. Nibbana is the cessation of greed, anger, and delusion. It is this still point 
But the still point isn't any distance from reality or life. It's the still point that includes everything. And that's that's really an essential point that Nibbana, the cessation, isn't some place outside of this world. It's the transformation is in the understanding of this world, not we get transported out of the world. It's a radical transformation, psychological transformation of one's understanding. And it's hard for us to fathom how much our habits of clinging create the world that we experience. Because we can intellectually, it's easy for us intellectually to understand not cling, not to cling, not clinging to things. But we we don't, it's hard to know until we, you know, begin to play with this practice, how much of what we take reality to be is just the experience of clinging. How much of our reality is the neurotic reverberations of clinging, grasping, reacting, pushing and pulling. This is who we take, what we take ourselves to be, like that great one-liner from Trungpa Rinpoche, the well-known Tibetan teacher, no longer alive. When asked about what gets reborn, he said something like, your neurotic tendencies get reborn. Bummer. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, from a Theravada Buddhist point of view, that's a bummer. (laughs) And and it's an inspiration to uh, not be confused by neurotic tendencies. They're only the only thing that can can get reborn are neurotic tendencies we take to be self. Neurotic tendencies that aren't taken to be self have no um, they have no fuel to be reborn. It's the identification that, in a sense, you know, in a magical way, locks it into a samsara, sort of a, a self-replicating pattern. But without the identification to the unwholesome tendencies, they don't replicate. They don't continue on. And here's the Buddha's words. Freeing themselves from longing, unhindered by habitual grasping, those who align themselves with the way, delight in non-attachment, and while still in the world, are radiant. And I like I like the word radiant here because when we hear about intuitive awareness and about letting go of what comes and goes, non-attachment to what comes and goes, and stillness and silence, as I've been saying, it, it can feel like a retreating from the world but this mindfulness, this intuitive awareness is hyper-energetic. It's quite radiantly alive. In fact, it's probably a good definition for aliveness in the most pure sense. Intuitive awareness is the aliveness without any friction. And a human being, a deluded human being, is aliveness with friction. I mean, that's how I like that uh, Definition, I'm not sure 
where I heard it first. Maybe maybe I even thought of it first. I'm not sure, but that just to equate the selfing and uh, clinging as a kind of existential friction that the heart creates due to confusion, due to not seeing the whole picture. And uh, when we release that clinging, that friction, all that's left is movement. But now the movement's not a problem. The aliveness isn't a problem because there's no center, there's nothing fixed to which that movement is happening. See, movement is only a problem if there's something fixed. So when, when you um, work with this practice, whatever the particular technique is, but it's really when you work with this attitude, this uh, attitude of intuitive awareness or a simple and pure open-heartedness, receptivity, alert, uh, interest, then <clears throat> it's uh, one of the barometers is the feeling of being more and more alive instead of feeling more and more dead or more and more suppressed or repressed in the practice. Like that famous line from the Dhammapada, you know, mindfulness is the path to the deathless. Should we just... <laughs> Heedlessness is the path to death. The mindful do not die, but the heedless are as if dead already. So there is a, a very much this, this kind of brightness. The radiant heart-mind, the knowing, is unobstructed. And so it's a, it's a brightness that uh, <clears throat> it's not limited, like, oh, I'm running out of energy to know. In a way, one way to think about it is, is we're discovering, we're realizing a knowing that doesn't take energy. The more conventional kind of knowing, like Mark trying to pay attention to his breath, that can be tiring. But in intuitive awareness or in a more pure state of awareness, we're realizing an effortless in the knowing. It doesn't take personal effort. Or in a way, the mind is resting or relaxing into a natural mirror-like knowing. It doesn't come and go. It's something that doesn't change. So I thought I'd mention a few um, places, you know, how this practice might manifest in different places in our lives. The experience of freedom that might arise or the experience of practice that might arise with like physical pain. And people brought this up in one of the small groups, I think today, maybe in more than one. 
And the question is, well, what is the experience of physical pain or emotional pain from the point of view of intuitive awareness? Because uh, many of us know that sometimes when we're caught up in you know, various afflictive states of mind and we see it, in a sense, awareness isn't being bound by that afflictive state in a sense, steps outside and says, oh, it's just judgment, it's just critical mind, fearful mind, it's like this. And the whole the whole construction of fear can fall apart with that simple recognition that it's just the mind state. But some pain, emotional and physical, is more chronic. It doesn't come and go, doesn't easily come and go. And then how how might that how might the practice of intuitive awareness help? Like if we're sick and dying, or if we're just sick and the pain isn't diminishing, or there we're in the proximity of a lot of suffering. We're just aware of a lot of suffering, and there's nothing really we can do about it. And so, how might intuitive awareness help? And it really points out this particular habit, of course, that we have, which is we expect the solution is going to be some correction uh, in the world. That we basically believe our perceptions that when we see the immensity of suffering in the world, you know, we're aware how many... We just, for some reason, have that opportunity to see how many children right now are suffering because of lack of nutrition or abuse, or see our friend who is just suffering and there's nothing we can do about it in pain and there's nothing we can do about it. Or we ourselves have chronic back pain and no matter what posture, no matter what kind of therapy we do, it just seems to continue on. No matter how we pay attention to it, it gets a little better, a little worse, but pretty much it's always there. So what good is intuitive awareness with that experience of pain? And you see it, when when we, just the resistance that we have to resting in that open attention and that intuitive awareness with an experience like this. It's like we don't trust that exposure. We don't trust it because we believe the solution has to include addressing the suffering. There's a very powerful, big assumption that suffering is bad, that pain is bad. And I'm not saying that pain isn't bad, or suffering isn't bad, or starving children aren't bad. All I'm saying is that the assumption is a fixed notion in the mind, and that anything fixed is to be mis- not to be trusted. 
we have to look directly for ourselves how this is. And the place to deeply understand how it is, is this place of intuitive awareness. So instead of, it's not like we go to intuitive awareness for answers. We go to intuitive awareness because it's how it is. It's like uh, I mentioned before, I think in one of the small groups, that it's not like, it's not that the techniques take us to intuitive awareness. It's more like we relate to our experience in a way that reveals intuitive awareness, re reveals the refuge. And the question is, what is chronic pain? What is the immensity of suffering from the place of intuitive awareness? And see, with intuitive awareness, there never there never were or can be any expectations or any fixed ideas about this or that. The word in, in Buddhism, tatata, or uh, as it isness, or the way it is. Now, from our ordinary point of view, it does not sound satisfying. You know, it sounds like some really feeble cop-out about, you know, in terms of relating to chronic pain or the immensity of suffering. But the, the real question is um, that it isn't a feeble cop-out. It's that step, that re resting back into intuitive awareness, into that basic, simple openness, is a radical stepping out of the need for control, the idea of control, the idea of good and bad. You can't have good, if you want good and bad, you're you know, from a Buddhist point of view, you're in the world of delusion. But it's not like there, it's, the intuitive awareness isn't saying there's no good and bad. It's just, it's not, it's not a question of good and bad anymore. It's as it is. This is how it is now. And there's something deeply beautiful in being able to include everything as it is. Everything is included. Everything, in a sense, not just touches the heart, but sort of blows it wide open, opens it wide up, right up. And the great, uh, even though it doesn't give an answer to the suffering in the world, it allows for an appropriate response, which is not to be afraid of it. Not to have to do something because we can't be close to it. We can't rest with it. So if we do something, it's because it's helpful, not because we're uncomfortable being around, being aware of suffering. And if there's nothing to do, we're okay not having anything to do. So this is important to understand, not to imagine that somehow the path resolves the problems of the world. It just creates a way to be completely in the middle of things.
in a beautiful, functional way. But it doesn't make the world other than it is. It doesn't change the messiness or the craziness of the world, the beauty of the world. In another place, we, I wanted to just reflect on like the experience of intuitive awareness and in interpersonal relationships. So I've been talking about how it, how it changes our relationship to pain and suffering. And now just reflecting on interpersonal relationships, that capacity, you know, developing that refuge or that trust and knowing and intuitive awareness, it really frees us up um, having to have an explanation or a definition of who we're around, who we're relating to. You know, some answer in terms of, do I like this person? Do I want this person to like me? It really frees up. And I'm reminded of um, Carl Rogers, a well-known therapist from the 60s, who had a therapeutic technique called, I think, unconditional kind regard as the sort of main element of his therapeutic approach that he taught other people. And to me, you know, I'm not sure. I've heard him speak um, via via videotape or a film of of him talking about his approach and actually him doing some therapy with people. And I think, to me, it, it's uh, at least pointing in this direction. You know, it's almost a cliche about getting out of the way or showing up. But not even showing up or getting out of the way as a technique, because almost that's too much. Like, I'm going to get out of the way in order to get to know you better, or in order to be a better friend. And again, this is something to just keep on the lookout for in terms of this practice of, of taking refuge in knowing. That it, it needs to be a realization or a, an awakening or a discovery instead of something we're going to do. Okay, I'm going to slip into my uh, unconditional awareness. I've had people call me on that. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't asked permission, so I won't name names, but one person at Common Ground, (laughs) she was talking, and and I just was sort of settling back, relaxing back into knowing, and she goes, what are you doing? <laughs> so this is this will will always be our problem, you know, especially in interpersonal relationships. We have will have some sense because it's arisen naturally, organically for us, the simple, beautiful, empty knowing, and then we'll want to replicate it. Um, we'll want to make it a a personal ego-based strategy because it was so good. It worked so well before. It really helped me over here. Maybe it will help me over here in this new situation. And then we we kind of prompt it or we imitate it. But it, it you know it won't work that way, of course. And the way I find now, um, 
having learned <laughs> my lesson lessons many times, is uh, the way to slip back into that, the way to uh, we reawaken to the intuitive awareness, to that basic freedom, that basic openness, is to, in that moment, being with another person, to own my own insecurity. I mean, it's obvious when you hear it. But if we can simply notice any tightness, any agenda, any tension in the mind or body, and and use that as a vehicle to remember the basic openness, the basic wisdom of not clinging, of letting go of control, letting go of good and bad, letting go of anything rigid and tight and defined. If we can do that with our own experience in the body, emotionally, then it's like one of the the real uh, aspects of that experience is it's all inclusive. So if we're relating that way with the emotion or the body, it's going to include everything. It's like we're relating the heart, mind is relating to the present moment that way, which includes the people or the person we're with. And I find, you know, when I'm around people who seem to be coming, arising out of this space, it's a real pleasure to be around. They're not like <laughs> this person who called me on it. You know, they're not like some blank and uh, sort of sterile and uh, cl clinically dissecting <laughs> our every move. There's, there is a warmth that is unmistakable because it's uncontrived. That's what really makes it unmistakable. It's a warmth that has no agenda. And when we're lucky enough to come across that experience, uh, you know, it really tends to stay with us, like how healing that was, how much we appreciated that unconditional kind regard. And it's precisely because we, the person, we weren't trying to be warm. The warmth was in the absence of self-centered activity. It was, in a sense, inherent. So those are some thoughts about this intuitive awareness in terms of interpersonal relationships. Another thing that's come up in some of the groups and it's just a, such an important place. It's so much, it dominates our life so much, which is just the, uh, the ever-present need of having to make choices in life. Small little choices like what we're going to wear, big choices like, you know, what am I going to do with my life? Who am I going to be with in my life? Am I a cat person or a dog person? <laughs> <laughs> or both? <laughs> Neither. <laughs> and so, you know, to reflect in our own experience, we've all, most of us, have been consciously playing, working with intuitive awareness, 
whether you call it that or not, being more mindful in life, not trusting our attachments and identifications as much as we have in the past, seeing what might another way besides basing our experience in the moment on our attachments, seeing if there's another way to relate or to be. So we've been working with this. So how how has it affected, how is it informing this ever-present problem, I guess, of having to make choices? How to negotiate life? And it, and it relates a little bit to what I was saying about pain and control, I think. And... Uh, <coughs> one of the thresholds we have to cross over, you know, as we open to this simple intuitive awareness is uh, um, giving up any sense of certainty because any sense of certainty that we have is something the mind is constructing. It's an idea we have about things. Oh, it's like this. And we can derive some temporary security because of our strong ideas. Like even the strong idea that tomorrow I'm going to go home. It will be This retreat will be over. And we can actually derive some satisfaction from that idea. My wife will be there and she'll still like me. And, uh, you know, the cat will still appreciate my pets and I can eat whatever I want that's in the fridge and and these things, these certain ideas, these fixations we have, however ordinary they might be, we derive some satisfaction on it, from it. But in order to open to things as they are, the non-fixed way of being, that means we let go of any kind of certainty. That's they're sort of uh, juxtaposed. They're not. They don't. Don't include each other. Any certainty or uncertainty. But it's just the the lack of certainty isn't a problem. When we open the heart into uh, you know that simple awareness. I guess what replaces our, the temporary certainty we get by fixing our mind on certain ideas, certain expectations and agendas, it's replaced by an inner feeling of wholeness. And I'm guessing that that's, that's that exchange. It's like it's not easy to let go of certainty, but the sense of fullness or the quality of completeness or perfection even, even though that's a bit of a loaded word. It's so strong that we're willing to give up any certainty about how things are, who we are, what's going to happen, what has happened in the past. Quite literally, we learn to let go of the whole world, the whole world in terms of our ideas about it. Of course, the world is still the world, whatever that is, but any ideas about it are dropped. And even if an idea arises in the mind, it's just 
a thought being known. The mind isn't using the thought to create ground for the ego, for the self. Because it's feeling whole, it's feeling complete. Now, Ajahn Tomato makes a really big point of this. I might have even mentioned it already on this retreat, but the one-pointedness, the stillness of intuitive awareness, it's a stillness that includes everything. There, it has a very distinct feeling of nothing is outside. So even though there's no uh, kind of ego ground there, there's very much a sense of safety. So there's no neurotic need for ground or certainty. And then some of the more, you know, on the surface then, in terms of making choices in our life, when we feel that completeness in the present moment, a sense of fullness in the present moment, then the fact that we haven't made an important choice in our life, it doesn't seem like some deficit. That's itself, that you know, the cliche, well, that's how it is. You know, not knowing whether I should do this or that, well, that's how it is. Like that's that has its own integrity because the flavor of intuitive awareness is that is of this kind of completeness or integrity. So the fact that we haven't made a choice isn't a problem. Or it is the current choice until there's another choice made. And then that will be okay too. And it's... What, what's that phrase from the Bible about, you know, give back to Caesar what's Caesar's? Mm-hmm. What's the other half of that line? Anybody know? Give to Caesar, give unto Caesar what is Caesar? Is there a second half to that? Mm-hmm. Do you know what it is here? Um, uh, I'm not sure. Oh, okay. <laughs> is it give to God? Give to God what's God, I guess. Yeah, that's what I, but I just didn't know exactly how that goes, but that, that makes sense. So, it's the same thing. The, uh, we give to nature the choices. So it's not to say that we shouldn't make a choice or that this choice is the one to be avoided and this is the... But what we're doing is we're taking refuge in the completeness of being present in that simple way. And Caesar, in this example, is the world of choices. And the personality and the mind that's going to choose one way or another. So we're not for making a choice and we're not against making a choice. We're, in a sense, we're taking refuge in a sense of completeness or wholeness that has no agenda. So the choice will be made. Nature will make the choice. The nature, of course, includes our personality, includes whatever from the past is has integra- been integrated into the personality. And a choice will be made. And it will either be a good choice or not a good choice, all of which will be seen clearly integrated because there's no distortion between the knowing and the flow, the unfolding of nature. That pure, simple knowing is like perfect partners with the unfolding of nature because it's illuminating nature with clarity. 
you know, mostly now we're afraid of nature because it's blind. You know, when we look at nature, it seems cold and heartless because it uh, it's just this happening sort of on automatic pilot. But this marriage of pure awareness and nature that's not uh, distorted by fear or greed, it's really a perfect marriage. And it it leads to what we'd call compassion or, or wise action. It doesn't transform the world. It transforms the world of our lived experience. Who knows about the world, actually? But what we do know is it transforms our how it is for us, our lived experience. And so one of the other characteristics is with this uh, deepening faith in this refuge of awareness is like we're weaning ourselves from these choices, the the meaning or the heaviness of the choices. Because the feeling of wholeness is is you know deeply satisfying. And so it's much less important to get the choice right. It's like how would we even that only makes sense from a neurotic point of view, like failure or success, living the life, being with the person I'm meant to be versus having made the wrong choice and being with the person I'm not meant to be with. That could only be made from a fearful, needy, greedy point of view. something as wide and deep as the unfolding of nature. Isn't it amazing? It's amazingly arrogant that we would somehow think we'd know like how something should happen. I mean, even something that feels so much our responsibility, like how our life should unfold. I mean, how, do, how would we know? I'm not saying we're not responsible for making choices. I'm saying that the arrogant assumption that we should know what we're doing is an arrogant assumption. So we make choices, but not based on an arrogant assumption. We make choices based on wholesome intention. I care about myself. I care about other beings. May we all be safe and happy. Now, that's a, that's a really safe place to make choices from. I care about myself. I care about everybody else. May we all be safe. a wonderful line you might have seen in the Dhammapada. It goes like this. As a bee gathers nectar, as a bee gathering nectar does not harm or disturb the color and fragrance of the flower, so do the wise (coughs) move through the world.
in um, Thich Nhat Hanh, it sort of illuminates this state, this relationship between intuitive awareness and the world in a really wonderful way that corresponds to my experience. He says, any psychological state, and I would expand that to any state whatsoever, but any psychological state which you subject to this illumination will eventually soften and acquire the same nature as the observing mind. So, and this is a bit um, unfathomable to me, because from my neurotic point of view, the world seems deeply messy and painful, and the suffering seems really real. And yet, my experience is, the more uh, my mind has taken refuge in this simple presence, this simple empty presence, that's not my experience of the world. The world, as I directly experience it, has the same, it feels, it, it, there's no distinction between the freedom and the warmth and the lightness of my mind, of the heart. It's, it, it seems to affect the world. And you get statements in Zen, you know, these sort of poetic statements about um, you know about nibbana, nirvana, and samsara coexisting, and I think it's just different people's ways of talking about this experience. So we want to be careful. The assumptions we make from our from being in the world with our ordinary consciousness, our ordinary points of view, and the messiness and the meanness of it and the heaviness of it. We have to be careful and drawing conclusions. We have to be careful the assumption that our perception is correct. We may not really understand the world completely, what it is and what it isn't. So I'll leave it here and we'll have time tomorrow um, after the 8.30 sit if people have comments or questions about some of these talks to talk to each other about it. But let's just sit for a few seconds and let go of the words. Thanks for listening, everyone. So we have some walking time now. We'll come back together at 9 o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.